This episode contains details that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. A recent college graduate goes out for a run and never returns home. Her car is found in the parking lot of a popular running trail, so foul play is immediately suspected. An experienced marathon runner who has begun showing signs of dementia laces his shoes up, heads out for a 30-minute run in his neighborhood, and vanishes. A Canadian transplant to North Carolina has begun divorce proceedings with her husband, leaving her friends suspicious when she fails to return home from a morning jog. What happened to Karen Stiles, Richard Travis, and Nancy Cooper? There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there's still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 18, Missing Runners in North Carolina. At the suggestion of a few close friends, I started running in high school. It wasn't something I had ever been interested in before, but it was a good way to stay in shape and socialize with my peers. After competing in track and cross country my junior and senior years, I ran a bit my first year of college before taking a break when work and studies got a little overwhelming. I rediscovered running when both of my kids were toddlers because I was tired of being exhausted all the time and carrying around unnecessary pounds. Finding the time to run when I was working from home as a freelance writer and also parenting young children was difficult. I remember putting on a fluorescent running vest a few times and actually running around my neighborhood in the dark before sunrise. It gave me an uneasy feeling though, so I only did it a few times. I also only went trail running alone a few times as well before listening to my intuition that it probably wasn't a great idea. I'm a person who tries to practice situational awareness and running alone in unfamiliar or isolated places ranks high at the top of my list of things not to do, no matter how desperate I am for a workout. The first story I'm going to talk about today, Karen Stiles, is one that always stands out in my mind because she disappeared while out on a run not far from where I was attending college during my freshman year. It was Halloween of 1994. Karen was a 22-year-old recent graduate of Western Carolina University, which is located in Cullowhee, North Carolina. Due to its location in the Western North Carolina mountains, the school attracts thousands of students each year who love exploring all the area has to offer. Karen had probably run in wooded trails while in college numerous times without a second thought. But on this day in 1994, she never returned home from her 8 a.m. run in the Pisgah National Forest, just a few miles away from where she had been staying at her parents' home in the nearby town of Candler. Karen's car was found later that evening in the parking lot near Hard Times Road. Not only that, but her car keys were lying on the trail about two-tenths of a mile from the parking lot, but there was no sign of Karen. Worried that something may have happened to Karen while she was running alone out in the woods, investigators ordered a ground and air search in the mountains of Buncombe and Henderson counties near the Blue Ridge Parkway. Like I mentioned before, 
At the time all of this was going on, I was an 18-year-old college freshman who had grown accustomed to running the trails that surrounded my high school in northern Buncombe County. The only place I was running at the time was the track at UNC Asheville during my PE class. I couldn't pass a newspaper rack without seeing the photo of Karen Stiles on the front page of the Asheville Citizen Times almost daily. The evening news reports also usually led with updates on her search. I knew in the pit of my stomach that something terrible must have happened to her. Women don't normally go out for an early morning jog and then leave their locked cars and car keys behind in order to stage some type of a disappearance. On November 13th, wildlife officers found a bloodstained t-shirt at nearby Lake Powhatan, resulting in more searches. The search continued for almost a month. On November 25th, a deer hunter discovered Karen's nude body duct taped to a tree in the wooded area searchers had been through several times before. Somehow, she had been missed. The scene was grisly, and there were very telling items located on the scene, such as a duct tape wrapper, a pornographic magazine, and a spent Remington 22 caliber rifle casing. The community, including myself, was conflicted. On the one hand, we were relieved that Karen had been found, but on the other hand, it was clear a sadistic killer was still out walking the streets, possibly looking for his next victim. The autopsy revealed more disturbing details. Karen had died from a single gunshot wound to the head. She also had multiple stun gun wounds to her body, including her pubic area. Investigators wasted no time rolling up their sleeves and engaging in good old-fashioned detective work. They headed to the closest Kmart, which was only about a mile away from the running trail, because they recognized the brand on the duct tape wrapper was sold there. After going through piles of receipts in the days leading up to Karen's disappearance, they located a transaction from October 28th that had the purchase of a 22 rifle, a box of Remington 22 ammunition, duct tape, a flashlight, and batteries. The ATF form that the purchase of the rifle generated revealed the name of Richard Allen Jackson. Jackson was a 26-year-old married father of two who worked as a dishwasher at a local restaurant just a few miles from the Pisgah National Forest. On December 20th, he agreed to go in for an interview at the Buncombe County Sheriff's Department. He waived his Miranda rights and answered their questions about his background and whereabouts on the days leading up to Karen's disappearance. Then, Sheriff Bobby Medford joined the interview and point-blank asked Jackson, what did you do with the gun you shot Karen Stiles with? Jackson responded, I think I need a lawyer present. Medford then said, Son, I know you bought the rifle and the duct tape at Kmart on the 28th of October. I know you were in Bent Creek on the day she was killed, and that's fine, but you need help. According to a news article I found from December 23, 2014, the investigators then consulted with the district attorney's office before continuing their questioning. Jackson was arrested and booked. The exchange would later come back to haunt the investigators. Jackson eventually broke down and gave a full confession to the abduction and murder. The details are as disturbing as you can probably imagine. He said he was in the parking lot at Bent Creek when Karen arrived that morning around 8 a.m. He watched from his car as she stretched and headed out on the trail. He put the duct tape, stun gun, and a pornographic magazine in his coat pockets. He then loaded the gun and carried it with him down the trail. When Karen passed him on the trail, he pointed the gun at her. 
She reached down and took her car key out of her shoe, telling him she had money in her car that he could take. Instead, he placed duct tape over her mouth and eyes and led her to a wooded area. Out of respect for Karen and her family, I don't want to get into too much graphic detail here, but she was sexually assaulted and shocked several times with the stun gun. Jackson stated several times during his confession that he never meant to kill Karen. But after the assault, the tape had slipped down below her mouth and she tried to scream for help. He said he panicked, shot her in the head once with his gun, and then left the scene of the crime. He also took the gun back to the Kmart where he had purchased it for a full refund. Based on the details of his confession, Jackson was charged with first-degree kidnapping, first-degree rape, and first-degree murder. This case was all the more sensational because Jackson was the adopted son of a very prominent real estate developer in Asheville named J.D. Jackson. Jackson's attorneys filed a pretrial motion to get the confession suppressed, but the trial court denied it. Almost a year after Karen's body was found in the woods near her favorite running trail, Jackson was found guilty of all charges. He was sentenced to death on November 22, 1995. But that wouldn't be the end of his story. That confession that came after Jackson had originally stated that he thought he needed a lawyer became the basis for a new trial. The North Carolina Supreme Court overturned Jackson's death sentence on April 3, 1998. An article that ran at the time in the Asheville Citizen Times explained the ruling this way. In ordering a new trial, the justices said in a unanimous opinion that Jackson's graphic confession to the grisly slaying shouldn't have been allowed into evidence during his trial. District Attorney Ron Moore said the ruling would be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court because of uncertainties over what exactly constitutes a request by a suspect to have an attorney present during an interrogation. On March 3, 2000, Jackson pled guilty in state court to second-degree murder, first-degree rape, and second-degree kidnapping. The charges were reduced to second-degree murder and kidnapping because the case against Jackson, without that confession, was largely circumstantial. The bullet fragments taken from Karen's autopsy didn't exactly match the cartridge found at the murder scene. Investigators couldn't find any fingerprints on the magazine and duct tape roll either because they had been left outside in the elements for too long. The prison sentences Jackson received in the agreement totaled over 31 years, and he received credit for five years already served. At the time of his plea, None of his lawyers considered the possibility of a federal prosecution, and none advised Jackson that he could be subject to federal prosecution. But that's what eventually happened. On November 6, 2000, a federal grand jury returned a superseding bill of indictment charging Jackson, in one count, of using a firearm during and in relation to a crime of violence, specifically murder, kidnapping, and aggravated sexual abuse. At the trial, the government called 22 witnesses during the guilty phase and introduced extensive physical and testimonial evidence, including Jackson's confession, which was received without objection. The jury returned a guilty verdict and then proceeded to consider the appropriate sentence. A federal jury in 2001 convicted Jackson on a charge of using a firearm on federal land in the killing of Karen Stiles. 
a federal appeals court later upheld the conviction. He is awaiting execution on death row at a penitentiary in Indiana. Asheville Citizen Times reporter Clark Morrison perfectly summed up my own thoughts about the lasting effects of what happened to Karen. He wrote, It was a murder that not only robbed a Candler couple of their only daughter, it also stole a sense of security from outdoor lovers, especially women, many of whom stopped walking or running alone in the woods, as Stiles had done the day she was murdered. Before we continue with our next story, I'd like to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Do you have a writer in your life you'd like to find a practical gift for? Or perhaps you want to throw some hints around on something you wouldn't mind receiving during the holidays? I recommend considering some of the ongoing offers over at WOW Women on Writing, such as submissions consultations where a writer can submit up to 4,500 words and then receive detailed feedback on where to submit. Or choose a manuscript draft editing package for novels, short story collections, and memoirs, complete with a consultation. There's also an ongoing course that can help you simplify your book writing process with a book style guide and a course where you can learn how to showcase your online clips with websites. Best of all, these packages are all affordable and offer incredible value and a personal connection to help you improve your writing and get your projects that much closer to publication. To check out these offers and many other courses that you can purchase as a gift, visit wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the classes tab. And now, let's get back to the show. The next story I'd like to share also features a lifelong runner whose disappearance has changed the way silver alerts are handled in the state of North Carolina. On February 11, 2019, Rick Travis, a 66-year-old man from Spencer, North Carolina, laced up his sneakers and headed out for a run. Rick was a native North Carolinian who had received a master's degree in social work from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1981. He discovered a love of running in his late 20s and eventually completed 31 marathons, including the Boston Marathon. On the day he disappeared, he ran the same route he normally followed two to three times a week from his home in Long Ferry Farms, located off US 29, and then back again. The route usually took him 30 to 35 minutes. When he didn't return back from his run after an hour, his wife, Jean McCoy, grew concerned. Rick was the former director of Davidson County's Department of Social Services and had also worked as the director of career services at Davidson Community College. About three years before his disappearance, Rick was diagnosed with a mild cognitive dysfunction memory loss. He was still determined to stay in shape and unwind during his runs. The day was wet, and the high had been 40 degrees, with the temperature dropping the closer it got to dusk. Jean got in her car and drove the route that he normally ran, but didn't see any sign of him. She called the local police department to share her concerns and enlist some help around 5.30 that evening. This was a case that is pretty local to where I live, and I remember seeing the social media alerts when they went out for the day Rick went missing. He was described as being a white male, six feet tall, slender, with eyeglasses, and on his run, he was wearing loose black running pants cut off at the calf, a silver rain jacket, dark gray and black running shoes, and black gloves. The Spencer Fire Department, Police Department, and Rowan County Rescue Squad were among the agencies that began actively searching for Rick. 
they focused on the areas that were near his running route because Gene feared he had gotten disoriented or turned around over the course of his run. The North Carolina Center for Missing Persons activated a silver alert for Rick. Silver alerts are used for adults that are believed to be missing and may be suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's disease or another disability that requires them to be protected from potential abuse or other physical harm, neglect, or exploitation. Once the news coverage of Rick's disappearance began making the rounds, investigators received tips from neighbors who reported they had seen Rick on Long Ferry Road in Spencer, not far from his home. The report that concerned Jean the most was from someone that claimed that they had seen a person matching Rick's description actually running along Interstate 85 against the flow of traffic. This report also noted that he appeared to be running very quickly, which Jean said was unusual. Rick liked to run long distances at a slower pace. A Find Rick Travis fund was set up for $10,000, and Crime Stoppers offered an additional $1,000 to that total. Rick's family was hoping the reward would encourage anyone with information about Rick's whereabouts to come forward. These are some clips from a press conference area search and rescue organizations held following Rick's disappearance. We, we can get the resources if we do not have them, and, and we're going to do absolutely everything we can to try to locate him. Uh, and I will tell you that his wife is very hopeful and she is so appreciative. I mean, we've got people here from the mountains to the coast uh, willing to help and try to locate this gentleman. There's not reason to believe that there's a criminal element here at this time. Um, you just don't know when somebody's missing, though. So, uh, you know, we want to keep all doors open. Uh, we've used uh, uh, every available asset that, uh, that is out there and available uh, to include uh, canines, uh, drones, thermal imaging, uh, helicopters, and of course the most important resource is uh, search and rescue teams on the ground doing uh, extremely detailed and uh, methodical grid searches. Right now we just want to uh, try to get everybody's help, every, any information uh, that we possibly can. And if you see anything that's out of the ordinary, or if you can remember anything that's out of the ordinary, uh, please call uh, 911 with that information. In the months after Rick mysteriously disappeared during his afternoon run, Gene worried and also felt something had happened to him. He had every intention of returning from that run and had even made plans to have dinner with a friend that evening at a local restaurant. In early January of this year, almost a year after he went missing, a hunter came across human remains near the Yadkin River, not far from where Rick was last seen along US 29 and Interstate 85. A copy of Rick's dental records were obtained and sent to the state medical examiner's office. Officials there confirmed the remains did belong to Rick Travis. To date, no cause of death has been released for Rick. Personally, I have a feeling Rick may have suffered a medical emergency or become disoriented while out on his run, or perhaps suffered from exposure later that evening when the temperatures dropped. His obituary noted that he died doing what he loved, running. Jean McCoy worked hard to make sure people like Rick can be found easier, thanks to the lobbying work she did during the months he was missing. Jean pointed out the flaws in the alert system. The North Carolina Department of Transportation's digital message boards were used to post silver and amber alerts for missing people who were in vehicles, but not on foot. 
Because of hers and others' insistence at a change in policy, law enforcement agencies for the Center for Missing Persons can now request that a notification be posted. Even though state officials issued a silver alert for him, they said policy prevented them from putting his name and information on these electronic message boards on I-85. Under their policy, only cases involving a car could be posted on the signs. If he'd been on the best message boards, someone might have remembered something that it would have triggered a memory and might have helped find him sooner than, you know, 10 months later. She knew in her heart that Rick was no longer alive, but she pushed for a change to that silver alert policy, even contacting traffic engineers and the governor. Today, officials with the North Carolina Department of Public Safety told me as a result of the efforts by the runner's wife, we expanded the sign policy to include pedestrians, a change she says could help hundreds of others who end up in Rick's position. Sometimes, though, a person doesn't disappear on a run. That's just what her murderer wants people to think happened. This appears to be the case of 34-year-old Nancy Cooper from Cary, North Carolina, who went missing on July 12, 2008. Nancy had moved to North Carolina from Canada in 2001 so her husband Brad could take a tech job with Cisco. The two had attended a neighborhood barbecue the night before she went missing which Brad left early in order to take their two young girls home. According to Brad, Nancy stayed a little later and returned home after midnight. The next morning, he was seen on a surveillance camera at a nearby Harris Teeter grocery store buying milk at 6.20 a.m. He told investigators he went home, but then returned to the store 10 minutes later because he realized he forgot laundry detergent. While there, he claimed Nancy called him from home and asked him to also pick up juice. Nancy then left the home around 7 a.m. to go jogging. Around 2 p.m. that afternoon, one of her friends made a disturbing 911 call. She told the dispatcher that she and Nancy had made plans to get together at 8 a.m., and because of the situation with the divorce, she was concerned she hadn't been able to get a hold of her friend. Apparently, Nancy had begun divorce proceedings against Brad, hoping to take their two daughters back home to Canada with her. Brad and Nancy were still living in the same house. The morning she disappeared, Nancy's friend found it odd that her car was still at the home she shared with Brad, and her cell phone was also there too. From what I could find in my research, it doesn't look like Brad made any calls reporting concerns about his wife. The next day, Hundreds of volunteers searched the Lockmere Lake and Regency Park, where they thought Nancy had supposedly gone running. Two days later, a man walking his dog spotted the body of a woman in a drainage ditch and called 911. This undeveloped subdivision was about three miles from Nancy and Brad Cooper's home. The body was eventually identified as Nancy Cooper. She had been strangled, choked so hard a bone in her neck was broken. She wore only a tangled sports bra and one diamond earring. There were no signs of sexual assault. Nancy's parents, who had traveled to Cary from Canada with Nancy's sister, petitioned the court system for emergency custody of Nancy and Brad's two daughters, who were four and two and a half years old at the time. They shared the details of Nancy and Brad's tense marital situation. 
Brad had agreed to the arrangement at first, but then took their passports to prevent them from leaving. Other details emerged that investigators paid close attention to. Although Nancy had been a successful career woman who had worked for IBM prior to moving to Cary, Brad had made it difficult for Nancy to apply for a work visa, leaving her dependent on odd jobs like painting friends' houses in order to earn money. In details that sound very much like the controlling relationship between Josh and Susan Powell, Brad put Nancy on a strict budget that limited her access to their bank accounts. By early 2008, she had confessed to her parents that she could no longer live with Brad and sought counsel. Nancy's parents were granted temporary custody of the children while investigators zeroed in on Brad as their prime suspect. They surmised that Nancy had never gone jogging. She had probably been murdered sometime after returning home from the barbecue, and Brad dressed her in a sports bra and shorts before leaving her body in the nearby subdivision. A search of Brad's computer showed a Google Earth search of the exact spot where Nancy's body had been found. Brad Cooper was arrested in October of 2008 and charged with first-degree murder. His trial began in March of 2011, and the trial brought a few surprises to light. It exposed a social scene among the beautiful homes of Cary, where neighbors fell into extramarital trysts after getting together for board game nights, backyard barbecues, or Halloween parties. Brad had confessed to having an affair with a local neighbor and said Nancy had also been guilty of having a one-night stand with an acquaintance. After more than 10 hours of deliberation over three days, a jury of 10 women and two men found Brad Cooper guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison. However, his attorneys argued that Brad had not received a fair trial, and that investigators quickly honed in on him as a suspect because they didn't want the residents of Cary to fear a crazed killer was stalking the streets. In September of 2013, the North Carolina Court of Appeals ordered a new trial for Brad Cooper because they felt key testimony from several witnesses had been withheld from jurors at the original trial. In September 2014, Brad Cooper pled guilty to the second-degree murder of Nancy in order to avoid a retrial of his case. As part of the plea arrangement, he relinquished parental rights of the couple's two daughters. Nancy's twin sister, Krista, formally adopted the girls. Brad was sentenced to at least 12 years in prison and got credit for the 2,156 days, or a little more than five years, that he had already served. Earlier this month, he was released from the Mountain View Correctional Institution in Spruce Pine and will be deported back to Canada. His two daughters he had with Nancy are now 14 and 16, and he is not allowed to have contact with them. Alice Stubbs, the attorney who had represented Nancy in her divorce proceedings, made a statement that the Cooper case had taught her a lot about spotting subtle signs of domestic violence. They looked like the perfect happy couple, but he was controlling and manipulative. And the more I talked with Nancy, the more I learned about that, she said. Hindsight is 2020 for all of us, but domestic violence takes on many forms. This brings us to the conclusion of Missing Runners in North Carolina. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please check those out and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. If you want to visit my blog and read more about true crime cases from all over the country, including the ones featured here, visit missinginthecarolinas.com. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at www.wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson.